0: Good morning, everyone. In the case, Attorney General of Quebec and Director of Criminal and and Penal Prosecutions and 91470732 Quebec Inc. For the appellant, Attorney General of Quebec, Stéphanie Quirion-Quentin, Sylvain Leboeuf, Julie Da Silva, Anne-Sophie Blanchette Gravel. For the appellant, the Director of Criminal and Penal Prosecutions of Quebec, Laura Elizabeth Trempe, Marie-Pierre Champagne. For the intervener, Director of Public Prosecutions of Canada, François Lacasse and Mathieu Stanton. For the intervener, the Attorney General of Ontario, Courtney Harris, Ellen Weiss, And Ravi Amarnath.
1: Association, Alisa Tompkins, Penelope Simons, and Albert Brunet. Pour For the respondent, nine one
0: four seven zero seven three two Quebec Inc., Martin Villa and Nikki Galanopoulos. For the intervener, the Association of Defence Lawyers of Quebec, uh, Léon H. moubayed Sarah Gorgas, and Guillaume Charlebois.
1: Constitution Foundation, Brendan Kane, Adam Goldenberg, and Sébastien Cusseau. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Gabe Vanert. And Jessica Maganotte. Maître Kirion-Quentin.
0: Madame Kirion-Quentin, you have the floor. Chief Justice, Justices. As constitutional jurists who are here to defend the penal provisions established by the lawmaker, we have been able to see a rise in recourses to Section 12 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This type of case is no longer limited to the criminal area. It's also extending to the regulatory area, recognition by legal persons or natural persons. Well, today it is a corporation who is asking to recognize its beneficiaries benefits under that right. But in recent years, what has it been? Has it been natural persons or legal persons? It has been natural persons. You are right. So the question today is does Section 12 of the Canadian Charter or should it be able to benefit legal persons? And the question that arises from that is what is the purpose of Section 12 of the Charter? Given uh, that uh, that is the only question that was examined in the Court of Appeal, it is the only one that we submit that this Court should examine today. You mentioned the purpose of Section 12, but the text also means something, doesn't it? The text of the the provision itself, yes, of Section 12, that is absolutely right, I will speak. On that a little bit later and in fact you are right. The terms used in Section 12 give us clues as to the scope of the guarantee. Today this Court has the opportunity to clarify the scope of that guarantee. What are the limits in fact of that scope? It is an opportunity to clarify the way of analyzing this particular Section of the Charter. We know uh, that there is a number. There are a number of things that must be proven. First of all, if a, a legal person wants to benefit from uh, the guarantee, it must show that it has an interest that falls within the scope of that guarantee. It is. We take that from a CIP. That is the test. So first of all, it involves analyzing the terms that define the guarantee and second, its historical origin, third, similar provisions in international law, and fourth, the meaning of uh, the other rights that are related to it. So section 12 of the Canadian Charter should be limited, therefore, to human persons. The object of the protection is to protect against cruel – or punishment or treatment that is inconsistent with human dignity. So if we look at the wording of the section, before you go any further, because I imagine that along the way you will tell us what you see as reviewable errors made by the Court of Appeal, but could I ask you a question? Did the maturity err in the method that it used, or did it use the right method but ended up with the wrong answer. What are you arguing? I will come back to the errors of the Court of Appeal, but what we're saying is that the majority of that court did not apply the test test properly to see whether a legal person could benefit from the guarantee. The court concluded uh, that a, a corporation did have a benefit in being protected from a A certain type of punishment, but if you look at the decision, you can see that the interest is compatible, compatible with the provision. But the court seems to agree with us that section 12 of the Charter aims to protect against punishment and treatment that is inconsistent with human dignity, and and so that was where the error in the analysis by the Court of Appeal would be. So yes, we hope so, because if there is no error, then you would be in a tough spot. But the method is not in the method. That's not what you're arguing then, that the court understood that it was important to identify the purpose of the section at issue. You're referred to CIP. Justice Belanger cited CIP at the beginning of her reasons. Yes, she does, she quotes it, however, the error of the Court of Appeal was that with regard to the method even though the right test was used, the CIP test was used, it doesn't go to the second step to find out whether the interest within the scope of the guarantee is consistent with the purpose of the provision. So what you're saying is that the majority of the Court of Appeal used the right test but did not apply it properly. Yes, that's right. So, I would like to interrupt you, and then I will let you continue. So, I I just want to ask a question because I don't want to forget it. So, in this case, we are talking about a minimum penalty. So, I would like to ask, when a corporation, a legal person, really is subjected to an an exaggerated minimum fine uh, because if it's not a minimum then the court can always change things but in this case it's a minimum fine so what other recourse is there aside from section 12 what could a corporation or a legal person use to defend itself from that kind of penalty what we submit is that under section 12 that legal person cannot invalidate the minimum penalty. Are there other types of recourse under the charter? I'm not sure. Sorry. Well, there could be political recourse or under the criminal code, perhaps there are provisions that could be used to benefit the company by entering into some kind of arrangement. But we say that under the Charter in Section 12, that is not the way in for a legal person. So if you come back to the wording of the section, I would like to draw your attention to uh, the uh, subtitle uh, under which uh, uh, Section 12 is, which is entitled Cruelty. The provision is that uh, everyone has the right to protection against cruel and unusual punishment. So I would like to come back to Justice Chamberlain's dissenting opinion in the Court of Appeal, and he talked about the term cruel, and we can use that for cruelty as well, and he said that, the, that cruelty is usually linked to terminology, linked to suffering, to torture, inhumanity, and barbaric practices. And these are all linked to living beings and cannot be associated with legal persons with regard to the expression cruel and un- unusual that was analyzed by this course in Miller and Coquerell that is in tab one of our condensed book and at that point it was with regard to 2b of the Canadian Declaration of Rights that was to protect against cruel and unusual punishment and on page 690 of that decision the Chief Justice said that the terms cruel and unusual are terms that complete each other and that, interpreted together, must be considered as the concise formulation of a norm. So those two words together have a meaning and they must be granted their due importance. They are the first clue to what could or could not be a a penalty or treatment that runs against Section 12. On page 688 of the same decision, the the judge analyzes the scope of the guarantee. And after reminding everyone that the the words of 2B repeat the English Bill of Rights and the Eighth Amendment of the uh, U.S. Constitution, the judge st- says, it is worth wondering, there may still be a question whether the punishment prescribed is so excessive as to outrage standards of dec- decency. This is not a precise formula for Section 2B, but I doubt whether a more precise one can be found. And here we are trying to, defined, to define what the scope of the guarantee is and to define what it is, and what it means to be inconsistent with human dignity. So we it's been pointed out that in English, in the English version, it's so excessive as to outrage standards of decency and saying that the expression is not the same in French and in English because in French it really is dignité humaine, which is human dignity. What, what we would like to draw your attention to in Miller is that it is not indicated which version is the original version and which version is the translated one so we can only conclude that the english version must take precedence or rather we cannot say that the english version must take preference we must say that both versions are equally valid so when we look at the two expressions in English and in French, we can say that they have the same meaning as uh, the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions of Canada puts forth. Please turn to tab 10 of our contents book. There we have included an extract from the website of uh, the Terminological and Linguistic Database of the Government of Canada. With regard to decency, you can see that uh, we have the expression to outrage the standards of decency in the phraseology here, which is translated literally by not being consistent with human dignity in French. So violating human dignity and being against the inherent value, inherent dignity of human persons. So all of the French language translations of the English mention dignity question isn't it possible that this was this termium database was actually used for the translation or vice versa really the point and I'm, I'm not sure whether at the time of Miller it was the practice to identify the original version of the decision as we do now but Don't you think it's a stronger argument to say, well, let's read all of the reasons for the decision by Justice Laskin and try to understand whether there was another meaning there, whether he was talking about some form of dignity that went beyond human dignity rather than really digging into this meaning of the words and the sort of, or rather the face value of the original version and the translation. Well, I agree with you, Justice Kasser. We believe that the two expressions mean the same thing. But that leads us to conclude that Section 12 protects the human dignity inherent to human persons. That's not only based on the decision in Miller, it's also based on principles of constitutional interpretation that are well known and an overall analysis of the context in which the the provision was adopted. That's what leads us to conclude that Section 12 is about human dignity. Ms. kyrian Cantin the majority in paragraphs 116 to 118 and 125 to 128, the majority mentions a situation in which certain provisions of the charter that apply to legal persons, as have been decided by this court, aim to protect human dignity. So the majority seems to say that since certain rights in the charter have actually been granted to legal persons, even though they are aimed at protecting human dignity, the argument seems to be, well, what is the problem of you applying that logic to Section 12? What would you say to that? Some of the sections mentioned by Justice Belanger in that decision, yes, do refer to the underlying values of the Charter protections that could have an impact on human dignity but i'm not sure that you can then say that that was the very purpose of those uh, disp- of those provisions for example section 8 is aimed at protecting privacy and that's what it's indicated in cip there are other provisions where it is clearly indicated that it is the the purpose of of protection is human um, dignity um, and therefore cannot be applied to legal persons and that's the case for 11C and 15. So that is where we can see that the physical and psychological integrity of human persons is is parallel that can be used here to analyze Section 12. So I will finish what I'm saying about cruel and unusual treatment, the terms. So we see that in Miller, the court said that it should be interpreted as the concise formulation of a norm, and there it was Section 12 of the Canadian Charter uh, that uh, is referred to, and that's in tab two of our condensed book. So now if we look at the historical context and the corollary international provisions in international law, we can see, as we said at the outset, that section 12 of the Canadian Charter comes from 2B of the Canadian Declaration of Rights, which used the formulation of the English Bill of Rights from from 1688 and the adoption of the Canadian Declaration of Rights took place much later, in 1960, in a context that was far closer to the post-war context, so it was at the same time as other significant international texts to protect human rights were adopted. For example, you have uh, the Convention to Protect the Fundamental Rights of Human Beings at tab 3, And Section 3 is the one that corresponds to Section 12 in the Canadian Charter. So no one can be subject to torture or to inhumane or degrading punishment or treatment. At tab 4, you have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and it's Article 5 where it is stated that uh, no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhumane, or degrading punishment or treatment. As indicated by our friends from the Director of Public Prosecutions, uh, there's also the relevant provision of the uh, the Convention on Civil and Political Rights, of which Canada is a member. We know that the provision aims to preserve the physical and psychological integrity of human beings, but nowhere in the terms that are indicated do we find the word proportional. So what we conclude from this is that if we look at purposive interpretation principles and apply them to Section 12 of the Canadian Charter, is that the protection is aimed at punishment and treatment that is inconsistent with human dignity. Insofar as a corporation does not have feelings, does not have integrity or dignity, in the human sense and cannot suffer – it cannot suffer from a grossly disproportionate punishment in the same way as a physical person can. So even though there can be a certain advantage to be recognized as being able to benefit from protection from cruel and unusual punishment, we can't see how that interest on the part of a legal person can be compatible with the purpose of Section 12. A penalty imposed on a company will lead to economic consequences. And if it is not paid, well, there is no possibility to go to prison or to work off the fine. So there is no, um, no compromise to the person's integrity, physical integrity or freedom. Uh, I also submit that economic interests will never meet the test for Section 12 for physical persons, but we have to look at the purpose of the section that is linked to human dignity. And that's what this court did in Boudreaux, which was about a victim surcharge that was imposed on a physical person. It's at tab 11 of our condensed book. Paragraph 43 of the decision, that's what I would like to read to you. So it is the highlighted passage. So the victim surcharge also had an important, a significant impact on the liberty, security, legality, and dignity of the persons to which, subject to its application. And in the English version, dignity appears. So we're not talking about outrage to standards of of, of, Rather, we're talking about the dignity of physical persons here. And in paragraph 67, it is a fine that so deprives someone from their livelihood that it is excessive to the point of being incompatible with human dignity. Paragraph seventy seven at the end of that paragraph and it's about of surcharge uh, that uh, even if offenders are grappling with severe addiction and mental illness, that they will have to go to court and it will continue to happen indefinitely. in order to recover the debt. And then a paragraph 110 at the very end of it. Then it's about um, indeterminate punishment that would result in a grossly disproportionate public shaming of disadvantaged offenders. So we submit uh, that uh, that cannot be applied to a legal person that does not have dignity and cannot be publicly humiliated um, by uh, the fact that they are, are underprivileged of mental uh, troubles and cannot um, subsist or find means of subsistence of their own. So the respondent's position is that the protection of Section 12 of the Canadian Charter protects against grossly disproportionate punishments either by their nature or their effects and is based on the test developed in nura and other decisions that look at the penalty that is appropriate for an offender and the um, and the punishment that is the minimum penalty, and to see whether it is cruel and unusual. So really here we say that we have to hold ourselves to really determining the scope of Section 12, because that is the question with which the court was seized. But according to the respondent, the interest of its clients with regard to the scope of the guarantee is the same thing as the purpose of the section of section 12 so the client has an interest of being protected against a grossly disproportionate fine and section 12 is aimed at protecting people from punishments that are grossly disproportionate therefore there is uh, they are aligned the test shows that, that test shows that the two are aligned according to the respondent. And I would like to interrupt you, please. Justice Belanger does not deny that human dignity is at the heart of the purpose of Section 12. But she says, 118, but then we cannot say that human dignity is an insurmountable obstacle that would prevent us from extending Section 12 protection to legal persons. What do you say about this argument with regard to using this protection of human dignity to those who are behind the corporate veil. Well, we think that extending the purpose of the protection, which is to protect against punishment and treatment that is inconsistent with human dignity, extending that to legal persons goes too far. It oversteps and it drains the constitutional protection of its meaning. Justice Binalshi is ba- bases herself on a large and liberal interpretation of the Charter to to overstep the very purpose of Section 12.
2: If you have an association of people, people who come together to have a. A common purpose but they don't have a, a legal personality but it is an association of people would you say that that association of people could benefit from section 12 because they're not a, a legal person but it's an association that could be prosecuted based on the, the a definition what we would submit is that in the case of a legal person that has a, a distinct legal entity it can't benefit from section 12 but we, uh, we're we not asking you to look at all of the possible uh, questions, but I do understand your question. Yes, I understand that you, it's not up to you to make that decision. So you're, it is really the legal person, and because they have a distinct legal personality. Here, the offender is the legal person, and they have... Uh, 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 patrimony and they have a distinct legal personality and section 12 looks at the effects of the penalty and this is the only person that needs to be looked at within the analysis of section 12. But we recognize the guilt of of a company based on their be, their actions, uh, the actions of their employees. If we refuse to make the link between the pa- penalty and the human that would be affected, in the end, will there be an asymmetry, uh, an unfortunate asymmetry between these two elements? Because the responsibility and the guilt is based on the actions that have been made by employees and the employees could suffer consequences of the penalty of the sentence. Yes, I understand your question, but if the the guilt is based on actions of those who belong to the corporation, well, the penalty itself is not uh, given to the, 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 the directors. It is the corporation itself that's, that has it. But it did affect the human dignity of the employees uh, of the people who are associated indirectly, yes, those uh, persons would be affected by the consequences of a penalty. however, uh, their personal pat- uh, the patrimony is protected, and the it is the corporation that would be affected yes, but the 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 guilt could be also be uh, an in on an indirect basis so There is an asymmetry, I would think, between the penalty and the guilt, both being indirect. Well, this asymmetry flows from the choices of people who uh, make up the corporation, who have a legal entity, and so they are protecting themselves personally. So, if there is an asymmetry, it would be to the advantage of those people who are protected by the veil of the corporation. Madame, I would think that these are two questions where there is a link between both, but we need to keep a distinction between the both. So, question. For me, the question, the first question would be, what is the scope of the law and once that's been determined the test for uh, the uh, rights being violated well it is tendency to mix these two questions well yes this is, we agree this is our opinion what we believe is that the responses position is the same as the, the court of appeal to the effect that they want to assimilate this guarantee in a way that is disproportionate and the test that was developed by the court to determine what could constitute a cruel and unusual punishment is it's in the context of imprisonment. Here we're saying that this is broader. And uh, Section 12, you want to look at the scope of the guarantee with respect to the penalty and the treatment. The punishment and the treatment, and this test is disproportionate. And it could be, in certain uh, situations, not be the test that would be applicable for all, anything that would fall under Section 12. The question here is uh, separate. First of all, you have to look at the scope of the guarantee. And secondly, you have to leave what would be the test in certain situations. We believe that there can be uh, uh, elements of proportionality that will come up uh, with minimal uh, penalties and in the case of imprisonment. However, human dignity can't be completely dissociated from uh, the exaggeratedly disproportionate. And this, we see this at tab two, and this is the Smith decision, where Justice McIntyre who is dissenting for other reasons says clearly and then you have this at uh, page uh, 1089 how these two concepts need to be brought together in the first paragraph you can see what uh, the Court said in the Miller and uh, Cochreel decision at the second paragraph, they're saying that they subscribe to those words, and that is the test as to know whether this uh, test is excessive to be not compatible with human dignity. So I also believe uh, these words, and I would say uh, that it, that to be, a cruel and unusual treatment or punishment which would infringe Section 12 of the Charter, the punishment or treatment must be so accepted as to outrage standards of decency. While not a price, precise f- formula for cruel and unusual treatment or punishment, this does reflect the purpose and the intent of Section 12 of the Charter and is consistent with the views expressed in the Canadian jurisprudence on this subject. To to place stress on the words uh, to outrage standards of decency is not, in my view, to erect a too high threshold for infringement of Section 12. As we have already noted above, while the prohibition against cruel and unusual treatment or punishment was originally aimed at punishments which, by their nature and character, were inherently cruel it has been extended to punishments which, though not inherently cruel, are so disproportionate to the offence committed that they become cruel and unusual. However, when considerations of proportionality arise in an inquiry under Section 12 of the Charter, great care must be exercised in applying the standard of cruel and unusual treatment. Or punishment. punishment not per se cruel and unusual may become cruel and unusual due to excess or lack of proportionality only where it is so excessive as to uh, that is an outrage to standards of decency. The respondent also says that section 12 has the effect, as the sections 8 to 14, that they represent an example of fundamental justice and that there's a consecration of the principle of the protection against the exaggeratedly disproportionate. If this claim is true, well, we have to interpret uh, Section 12 of the Charter uh, as we do with Section 7, which also protects the same principle of fundamental justice. However, we know that Section 7 does not protect legal persons because their their life, their security cannot be affected. And even if uh, it is written, starting with the words, everyone, In Erwin-Toll decision, which you have at tab 8, this was a a challenge of Section 7 with respect to to, uh, the sentencing, and they were saying that the bankruptcy or liquidation of the company would bring up Section 7, and that corporations were protected against uh, this economic freedom. And in the motor uh, vehicle, uh, at the, they're interpreting uh, more narrowly uh, section 12 with respect to section section 7, and they're both dealing with fundamental uh, justice. we would say that the position of the respondent with respect to the pro- pro- protection against it uh, 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 has the effect of trivializing this section and the court has said many times uh, that the, ha- the bar has to be, remain high for this test. If we uh, look at this, so we're putting aside the whole concept of human dignity and we look only at the penalties that May only be excessive. However, we have repeated that the test that the 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 test was that it had to be the bar was high enough so that it would be incompatible with human dignity. So the cruel and unusual treatment, which is a standard in itself, and that there is protection here when we're talking about cruelty. As was mentioned earlier, the Court of Appeal doesn't seem to deny that Section 12 would have as a purpose purpose, the protection of human dignity. And at 113, and you you can see that at tab 13, 12 rather. Here the Court indicates that it's true uh, that uh, that uh, Section 12 of the Charter uh, is inspired by the Bill of Rights, the English one, against a cruel and unusual pungents, and also of the Canadian Declaration of the Rights, and also an international pact with respect to civil rights and political rights. It is a question of protection of rights linked to human dignity. But it's also true that since the adoption of the Charter in 1982, the doctrine and jurisprudence associated with the protection of uh, against treatments or cruel does relate to human dignity could you speak about uh, justice belanger what he said at paragraph 122 when he said that a legal person can suffer what do you say to that well It's wrong to say that a legal person can suffer. A legal person can suffer economically. But here we're not speaking of a suffering as a natural person would experience, that it is affected in their feelings and that they're subjected to uh, an attack, a real attack to their integrity. So uh, an economic suffering here, which is dissociated completely with human dignity, we would say that it's not sufficient to reach the threshold for the test for Section 12. Is such a suffering, could it be cruel? Cruel, as mentioned in Section 12? No. Economic suffering on its own, uh, the suffering of a legal person or the effect of a fine that may be too high with respect to to their holdings, that cannot be cruel. It does not uh, really uh, correspond to the definition of a cruel treatment. Yes, well, this is the conclusion. Why must we speak about a purpose when the text is determining here? Well, the text allows us to define the purpose of section 12. Yes, here, this is a good indication, the words that are used. So the text can define the purpose. I say that it is uh, some, an element, but with respect to the interpretation, you have to look at the historical and philosophical context and the meaning of other provisions of the charter, which are linked to the same section. So there are several elements that may come into consideration when you look at the words that are used in Section 12, but it does give you a good indication of the protections guaranteed. Generally speaking, the French is more precise than the English, but both languages uh, do uh, share uh, a lack of precision with respect to suffering. And when you talk about economic sufferings, well, this is not the same thing as a physical suffering. So I think that these are two different things. Exactly. And physical suffering and psychological suffering implies an attack on one's dignity and flows from uh, the, the lack of freedom and security. And these are other uh, rights that are protected by the Charter. However, an economical or uh, any economical harm here, this is not something that the court has recognized as being protected by the Charter until now in any case. The Court of the Appeal and the Respondent are basing their arguments on a large and broad and liberal interpretation of Section 12, but we would submit in our fact, and we think that it's important to not go above and beyond the purpose, and it's important to have limitations. Recently, the Court has reminded us in the Poulin uh, case at uh, tab 13, at paragraph 53, As I've already mentioned, a a right guaranteed by the Charter must be interpreted purposely in in a principled way, that is, in a way that is justified by its purpose, and that this needs to be repeated because, as our Court has noted, the purposeful and principled interpretation and a liberal interpretation may be uh, uh, conflated wrongly conflated. And we see this in the Big N case, Big M, where a liberal interpretation rather than a formal interpretation says it's important to not go above and beyond the true purpose of the right in question. Our court has said in the grant decision that the purpose of the law must remain the main concern. And liberal interpretation is restricted by this purpose and is subordinate to it. And it's this the case is such because an excessively liberal interpretation of a right could uh, protect rights that are above and beyond the purpose of this constitutional protection and in the case of most uh, rights the interpret the broadest interpretation of the law which is also the most liberal interpretation could go above and beyond the purpose of the right so all constitutional protection has a beginning and an end and uh, it's the purpose that creates the limitations and here we would say that we are trying to go above and beyond the purpose and to go above and beyond the purpose of Section 12 of the Charter. With respect to the reasons of the court, with respect to the consideration of the impact on physical people, natural people who it would be behind a corporate entity, I responded to that question earlier where we believe uh, that this sets aside the whole idea of the legal entity, which is the corporation, and that it goes against uh, the teachings of this court uh, in Wholesale Travel Group uh, and in Brunette, where uh, the corporate veil needs to be sealed at both sides when we look at section 12 and each everyone has the rights not to be subjected to any cruel and unusual treatment or punishment would torture be included within these treat within a treatment that would be uh, uh forbidden by section 12 well you're asking me to uh, Uh, make such a decision, but I think that that treatment, yes, could, would be something, would fall under the protection of Section 12. Then at that, could we say, could we say that a company could be tortured, a corporation could be tortured? Well, the definition that uh, I I understand of uh, torture, it is an attack, a physical attack. These are uh, physical trials that are imposed on a a human person, so I don't think that a corporation, a legal person, could be subjected to torture. The Court has also looked at a series of factors to determine the scope of Section 12 of the Charter, and Both the Respondent and the Court of Appeal are insisting on the question of public interest. And so they insist that it would be in the collective interest to recognize a protection to corporations or legal persons. And they're basing themselves on the CIP decision and incorporating notions of uh, public interest to their analysis. However, the CIP decision uh, is an, uh, analyzing 11B of the Charter with the right to have uh, reasonable time limits, and this uh, involves a collective right or a social right, and that's not the case in Section 12 of the Charter. Section 12 is protecting an individual right in, uh, for for uh, everyone to be not subjected to any cruel or unusual punishment, and this is, uh, but the collective interest doesn't need to be taken into consideration and sometimes it could even be contrary to the rights of the individual who may be imposed as such a uh, punishment. So they, uh, we don't believe that the public interest is if any uh, consideration in the analysis of, sec- of the scope of Section 12. And it would be the same thing for the uh, factors uh, for the sentencing. and. Uh, the, uh, the judge looks at 791B, uh, 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 718, it could have uh, an effect uh, with respect uh, to an employer and the remaining in their position and they use that paragraph and the ju- judge uh, concludes that there would be an interest, so that they would have the protection. Of uh, section 12 with respect to sentencings that may be exaggerately disproportionate. However, we believe that this is looking at the problem from the wrong side. The Charter gives a minimum of constitutional protections which are guaranteed, and the legislator is free to go above and beyond the protections that are there to give more uh, broader uh, protections to in sentencing. The fa- these factors don't have any constitutional values. The court has, when they're looking at proportionality, they, uh, to say that they were constitutionally protected, for example. So we can determine the purpose of a guarantee, basing it on uh, what is in the criminal code. And here we're looking at the char- the scope of the card, and the, the criminal code in the, is not relevant. The Court of Appeal judgment, it sets aside the, the question of human dignity with respect to treatment or punishment that may be cruel, and looks at a lot broader protection of public interest to protect economic interests of legal persons, corporations. And this is completely changing the protections that were provided for. And inevitably, we must conclude that uh, there, there is uh, uh, the protection of human dignity, which is included in the protections of Section 12. When we looked at the posi- when we look at the position of the Court of Appeal, and the respondent, there could be a different undesirable effects uh, produced. First of all, you could say that there might be a category of offenders that may be protected from any kind of penalty. And here we're looking at corporations that have little income, because there's no possibility of of prison or other type of work or other type of uh, penalties that can be used uh, for this type of offender. Secondly, it it might become an incentive uh, to not declare all of one's income, especially for companies that are in uh, regulated industries, as is the case here. Another risk which could occur, unfortunately, would be to weaken the regulatory uh, regime. We do know that there are many rules uh, that are provided for within the regulations and where the penalty is a minimal fine. This is the standard in the regulatory field. It would be easy to imagine a hypothetical reasonable scenario that may be brought up uh, by an offender to invalidate the penalty, even if they would be benefiting from the capacity to pay the fine. Earlier you uh, said that you accepted the idea of there was a distinction between the scope of and the notion of being affected. Here you're talking about uh, the effect. To ex- to explain the port, but uh, the the scope, but are they really uh, something different. You're saying no, we can't accept the argument uh, uh, that uh, section 12 applies to legal persons because look what will ha- at what will happen if you would open the door, it'll be catastrophic. All of uh, the provisions in regulatory l- uh, law. So if you you're not respecting what you said earlier with respect uh, uh, to uh, this question of clarifying the limitations. Yes, these are two uh, different uh, uh, questions. And and of course, there needs to be different answers with respect to the application of the provision and uh, as to its purpose. However, here, if you look at the uh, respondent's position, they say that it's the same thing. These two positions are the same. And an effect of that could be, that there could be very easily uh, to bring up hypothetical scenarios because that has already been done uh, by the Court of Appeal at uh, paragraph 133 of their decision. You have that at ta- tab 12. Uh, in- indicating that it would be rare... Uh, that uh, a corporation would be able to uh, to reach the test for section 12 the court at paragraph 133 uh, says that there could be certain scenarios where according to them that there could potentially uh, be uh, a question of uh, Unconstitutionality. Here we're talking about legal persons who might be an economic engine for their region, where they might have to close their door, to, to let go of their employees, who would move and affecting the pension funds. And also we're talking about family businesses that may be built over many uh, years of hard work so that may not have any other alternative other than bankruptcy. We talk also about about large companies who may be able to counter the effects of these exaggerated uh, fines uh, and would uh, simply pass on uh, the fine uh, to the consumer. So what we can see in those three examples is that it's a, a small family business as well as a large corporation uh, who is an economic engine of their region. So here we're saying that it would be rare that uh, such scenarios would be able to reach the test for Section 12. And here you have three examples that reflect all types of uh companies that might present themselves so here we're talking about the protection of the patrimony of the uh, companies rather than the public uh, through this regulatory regime uh, despite the living free uh, argument that the court has used you can't broaden this uh, pr- the protections where you t- you unearth their their roots uh, uh, historically philosophically uh, and linguistically and to conclude we would submit that we have not spoken neither in our factum or in our oral submissions today of the question of of the the 179 one the of the Building Act we would conser, consider consider it's important to first to have clarity based on the scope of a Section 12 before determining whether the protection is in unconstitutional. So under those circumstances, we come to an end and we would like you to accept the appeal and to return the judgment of the Court of Appeal. Thank you. Like us.
0: Mr. Lacas before you begin, I would like to say that in looking at the list of counsel, uh, perhaps uh, there is someone who's not at the right place, and I don't want him to be surprised, so I would like him to take the floor after the interveners. I'm talking here about one of the councils. so I would like to, to talk here about the interpretation of the reasons of the court. So the respondent is saying is that this grossly um, disproportionate nature of the penalty that makes it inconsistent with human dignity is more uh, restrictive than the English version, which is to outrage the status of... of decency, and that would apply to legal persons, not just to natural persons. And the respondent is saying that there is a translation error in the French version, and therefore only the English version, the original, supposedly would take precedence. So you heard uh, Ms. guillaume Cantin suggest that both versions had equal authority. And we uh, think that in this case, in this appeal, it is not necessary for the court to, to decide which rule should be... Um, applied uh, to the potentially discordant terms of the, because first, there is no contradiction. Uh, Therefore, I uh, will uh, refer you to the terminological analysis in our factum with regard to the meaning of decency and dignity. I would just like to add, though, that in Boudreaux, the original English versions of the reasons of the court use the terms incompatible with human dignity. Uh, So it's paragraph 67 specifically of the reasons by Justice Martin for the majority and in paragraph 126 of Justice Cote's reasons for the minority. The second reason for my argument is that it's not appropriate to use this case to decide on this issue because the consequences are far more nuanced and complex than they seem at first glance. So I would like to talk about this. And say uh, that the predominance of the original version might seem sufficient, but there are a couple of difficulties. The first is that uh, the theory cannot be applied, or is very difficult to apply, when uh, decisions are handed down without identifying the original version. For example, in the reference rega- uh, with reference to the uh, secession of Quebec, that is one good. Example: There's um, Justice Clare Duvet as well in the 90s. There were a number of um, decisions handed down by her, and we don't know which was the original version. And it's the same for all of the decisions handed down by the court between 1970 and 1980. And this is particularly relevant because the definitions at issue here come from Miller, which was handed down in 1960. So 1977 so the respondent's position is based on the fact that the decisions in miller were drafted in english perhaps probably but it can't be objectifi- objectively checked there's a second difficulty here and that is that there is the principle of the de facto equality of languages in of the French and English in Canada, and it's based on section 16 to 19 of the Charter, section 20 of the Official Languages Act, and the Iborlak decision from 1999. So if the original version were uh, to take precedence as the authority, does that mean that unilingual decisions would be sufficient and would trump everything? I don't think so. So there's a solution. That is a solution that was proposed this morning by my colleague, which was drawn from the rule on bilingual interpretation in DAO, and it's based on seeking to find the common sense interpretation of both versions. And so this also has a few difficulties, and that's because common sense is based on the legal, of the same authority of the two versions. So if that's what we have here, even for the charter then we do not have an equivalent for jurisprudence so we'd have to have judicial recognition to to actually state what the lawmaker intended. There is another problem which is that the common sense of the translated version might not have been approved by the judge handing down the decision and this would be applicable to all federal tribunals and possibly not just this one. There's a third difficulty here and that arises from section 133. of the 1867 Constitution Act, which provides the justices of federal courts and courts in certain provinces the right to draft their decisions in the language of their choice. So I think that this leads me to respectfully submit that this case is not the right case to decide this issue. And even if there were contradiction between the two versions, really uh, the analysis of Section 12 of the Charter should not depend on some kind of terminological Um, question or doubt it really should be based on the other principles and finally with regard to what um, Justice Brown asked about the possibility for a legal person to suffer economically with all respect I would say that a legal person does not suffer it's It's subjected to the economic consequences of the penalty. But suffering implies that there is a possibility to feel. And as I stated in my factum, suffering is something that humans do. Thank you very much. Courtney Harris, Chief Justice. Uh, Just a moment. I think I would like to say human beings and animals as well. I should have said living beings. Yes, thank you very much.
3: Chief Justice, and justices the Section 12 right is intrinsically human, a corporation is not human, and that should end the matter. But the majority of the court below looked beyond the corporate offender to search for a human who may suffer collateral consequences of a fine imposed on the corporation. My submissions argue that the Section 12 focus must remain on the offender and not shift to third parties. When a corporation is being sentenced for an offence, no human is before the court to invoke Section 12. And the Section 12 analysis should not consider the effect of a sentence on anyone but the corporation itself. A corporation cannot have its corporate veil and pierce it too.
4: Well, how about uh, confiscation of all assets for a minor infraction? Would that not be grossly disproportionate? And I asked the question because I've made the distinction between whether Section 12 applies to corporations versus whether a penalty may be grossly disproportionate. I can conceive of something which would be grossly disproportionate, but it doesn't matter if corporations cannot uh, avail of the benefit of Section 12.
3: A grossly disproportionate um, fine for Section 12 purposes has to be about the standards of decency shocking the conscience of Canadians, the impact on a corporation which is a bundle of property rights is an economic impact I don't think that there's any universal agreement like we would have for a human right when we understand what cruelty and unusual punishment is in the human sense. We don't have that universal understanding when it comes to what is an appropriate sentence for corporation when it just impacts economic rights.
5: But your your answer goes to whether the test or section 12 is met or not. It presupposes that the corporation has section 12 rights. I would have thought that the answer is corporations do not fall within the scope section 12
3: absolutely Uh, they do not fall within the scope they do not have a life they can be dissolved at the will of the humans who operate behind them Um, that is the very first position I was uh, and the second position of course is that they can't experience any cruel and unusual punishment is
4: it is it fair to say that we have created this concept of gross disproportionality we've we've created it as, as a test Against which to measure whether a particular punishment or treatment is cruel or unusual, and but it doesn't tell you anything. I think that's your point. It doesn't tell you anything about the purpose, and it doesn't tell you whether corporations come within the scope. So, so that's just just to say that something is grossly disproportionate against a corporation doesn't answer the key question, which I think is what Justice Roe was getting at. You know, um, you've got to look at what the purpose of it was, what the scope of it is.
3: You, exactly, Justice Moldaver. You cannot unhinge gross disproportionality from the scope of the purpose of Section 12. Um, it's a uniquely human experience that is at play. If gross disproportionality is unhinged from an impact that causes physical or psychological suffering, um, then it is actually separate from what we understand Section 12 to be.
4: I just want to ask you one more thing because your time is limited. We hear all about this concern about big fines against corporations could end up harming employees and presumably creditors and so on and so forth. But the same could be said about someone that's in a private business, who's not a corporation running a business and who gets sent to jail for five years, we don't say, Oh, by the way, that's cruel and unusual because a whole bunch of employees are going to lose their work, your family's going to suffer, creditors may suffer. It's a totally foreign concept and I don't know if it doesn't apply there to the private entrepreneur, why should it apply to corporations?
3: Absolutely, um, Justice Moldaver in criminal sentencing, judicial release, interim release hearings, we never consider the impact on third parties, whether they be family members or others who would be affected by the absence of the offender, so why would we consider that here? Every day, corporations engage in activities that impact worker safety, investor confidence, and the environment, and the same is true in public welfare statutes. They protect consumers, employees, shareholders, and the public at large from harm that can arise from these activities. It would be paradoxical in this case for corporate wrongdoers to invoke the rights of the very people public welfare statutes are meant to protect to avoid the consequences of the penalty imposed on the corporation for putting these people at risk. May I ask this question please in your factum you you uh, make the argument that extending section 12 to corporations contradicts fundamental principles of corporate law. As I read that section it explains why corporations are different from humans, but how is it contradictory uh, to the fundamental protections? I, I, d- I don't understand that argument you make. As a corporation, the reason why people incorporate is to hold liability um, at arm's length. So the very people who are behind the corporate veil um, and that's the whole principle behind corporate law is to protect the people in their common enterprise but to protect the individual humans behind it or holding companies, whatever it might be, from any liability that occur, um, incurs to the corporation. So if you take this situation of occupational health and safety, um, the business has incorporated something happens within the workplace where a worker is injured that could be done at a level of decision making quite far down the corporate ladder. And it's not that person who's going to wear the charge, it's actually the corporation that's put before the court. And so when you look at at that, we know it's the corporation that's before, and so the court, and it's that person who invokes section 12 to say, and that's the human rights interest, to then say that, no, no, we can, it can be the corporation that can invoke Section 12, which is what the majority of the court below says, that actually turns corporate law on its head. Because everything we've understood for over the last 100 years is that all of those people behind the corporation are protected. They're not going to go to jail because of what happened in the workplace that day.
5: Thank you. Thank you very much. Alisa Tompkins.
6: Chief Justice, Justices, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association submits that where a corporation seeks to benefit from charter protection, the court must engage in a principled analysis. Most of the discussion by this court and analysis in this regard took place almost 30 years ago in Irwin Toy and CIP. In our factum, we have proposed five principles that we submit should guide the court when it's considering applying the charter to corporations. And we submit that these principles or factors should be balanced in each particular case based on the specific right at issue and the facts in that case. I'll attempt to go through each of those five principles in my four minutes and 24 seconds remaining. First and foremost, human rights are presumptively for humans. Universal human rights are designed for the attainment of dignity and well-being for human beings, and that's the starting principle. The second principle flows from the first, The potential conflict of interest between human rights, human beings and a corporation supports the need for the limited application of of the Charter to corporations. Our third principle is the nature of the right, and here we're relying on the existing analysis that focuses on the interest at issue and the scope, irwin Toy and CIP. However, where we differ from this court's reasoning in CIP and the Quebec Court of Appeals reasoning in this case, is that only in the most rare and exceptional circumstances should the corporation be able to invoke the rights of those individuals behind the corporate veil. Human beings decide to incorporate to gain the benefit of the corporate veil. And it's a long-standing principle of corporate law that the corollary of that is that they also have limited abilities to redress the wrongs done to that corporation. Now. We do submit that there could be very rare exceptions to this. First, if a government were to target a corporation based on the identity of the shareholders, effectively the government has already pierced it. The other is not as much an exception as this court remarked in Cosmopolis, that where the individual is the one who suffered the injury in that case, or in this case where the individual's charter rights have been violated, it's not actually an exception to the rule in Foss and Harbottle, it's actually the individual rights that are at issue. Earlier, Justice Karakatsanis, you asked about whether this would result in an asymmetry. I would submit that the current situation is what creates the asymmetry. The individuals, the officers and directors of a corporation, the shareholders, they're generally shielded from liability. They can be charged jointly as individuals, but in such a case, they would have a right to invoke charter rights. In the event that our criminal code had a provision that rendered uh, officers, shareholders, directors liable for the acts of the corporation, irrespective of the involvement. That wasn't uh, what I was getting at, was that the corporation's criminal liability,
0: it can be established by the acts of the individuals behind it. Why not take into account the consequences to the individuals behind it? So you're looking at crime is established through the individuals. penalty is not looked at in light of the individuals. That's the asymmetry.
6: I think what I'm saying though, is that the current situation actually creates an asymmetry and that the acts of the individuals, if the individual's actually committed the acts, they can be charged individually and invoke charter rights. In the event an officer, for example, has nothing to do with the wrongful acts, there's no presumption that they're criminally liable. If that presumption exists, then I would agree that there's an asymmetry, but right now, we actually say it's an asymmetry that those individuals invoke the corporate veil to shield themselves from liability, and that then when they're charged criminally, would seek to invoke those very rights of those individuals who who have chosen to hide behind the corporate veil.
4: Before you go to your next one, I want, because I know your time's limited. Um, section 12 talks about cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. How does the word treatment factor into corporations, if at all? I mean, we know that treatment vis a vis people could be solitary confinement, it could be torture. How does, how, where do we look to see if treatment, I mean, why would parliament use that word if it meant if, if it meant to include corporations if it has no purpose
6: well our submission with respect to section 12 is that that when you look at the purpose of the right there being no justification for looking behind the corporate veil that it wouldn't generally make sense at, to apply it to corporations and given the purpose of the provision we submit has been repeatedly focus on human dignity, that the word treatment is just consistent with that view, that it is a human issue that the the right is ultimately seeking to protect. Thank you very much. Those are my submissions, thank
5: you. Mr. Gibb-Vanert.
7: Chief Justice, Justices, the question of whether the human right to be free from cruelty applies to legal persons as it does to natural persons has been considered by international courts and tribunals. And the answer has been a resounding no. It is a human right and it is not a corporate right. The Anglo-American right to be free from cruel and unusual treatment or punishment passed into international law after the Second World War. And you've heard a little bit of that from the appellants. Through a variety of instruments, international and regional. It became part of international human rights law. The language used internationally is a little different than our charter. It generally talks about a right to be free from torture or cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment or punishment. That's a semantic difference. It is not a substantive difference. And it's not me telling you that. It's Lord Bingham of Cornhill for the Privy Council considering this very point in a mandatory minimum sentencing case from Belize in 2002. Uh, crown against race and what Lord Bingham said there, he was specifically considering the difference between the Anglo-American formulation found in our section 12 and the international formulation found in our international obligations. He said there's no daylight between them and what is particularly notable is that he reached that conclusion by relying on the jurisprudence of this court. He looked to Miller and Cockreel, Chief Justice Laskin saying this is not a test, cruel and unusual treatment is not a test, it's the compendious expression of a norm. And he looked to Justice Lemaire in Crown Against Smith, who said that the purpose of Section 12 really is about uh, avoiding grossly disproportionate punishments. So on that basis, I say the international provisions are relevant to you because we're talking about the same sort of prohibition. In my factum, I set out what the international courts and tribunals have done with this. In short, they have insisted that the right to be free from cruelty inheres in human beings only because cruelty is a human experience. To answer Justice Brown's question earlier, whether or not corporations can suffer, corporations have no emotional lives at all. Uh, this notion of cruelty, which is built into the text of these provisions, whether in Section 12 or internationally, presumes a human body, presumes the possibility of physical or mental suffering. Well, it presumes a sentient being. could be a dog. Quite right. I I don't think dogs were in contemplation of the drafters of the international instruments, but yes, sentience is the presumption, So do dogs
5: have section 12 rights?
7: (laughs) I'm going to leave that for another day, Justice Brown. (laughs) But I'm going to suggest the answer,
5: it's found in the text, which refers to everyone.
7: You don't need to go any further than the text, and in fact, in the international instruments, uh, what you find in the the courts that have considered them, they're actually quite dismissive of the idea that corporations would have access to uh, anti-cruelty rights. Because the text is so clear that we're talking about cruelty, which means we're talking about bodies. The European jurisprudence is particularly notable, by the way, because the European Court of Human Rights is more friendly okay, to but corporations. Okay, the European
4: Court of Human Rights, now you're talking not international law, but comparative law, aren't you?
7: I'm talking about, you're right, yes, we're not bound by that. Uh, that's quite true um but it's nevertheless relevant i'm going to come back to that in a moment by the way because i say you're not actually bound by any of this at all in one sense that i will come back to what's interesting though is that that regime is very open to corporations uh advancing human rights claims but they draw the line at article three they draw the line at anti-cruelty provisions those have no applications uh to corporations because corporations don't have bodies the same has been said in the inter-american Uh, human rights system in a recent advisory opinion. To come back to your point, Justice Rowe, uh, you're quite right that the European provisions are not binding on us, although there are similar provisions in the International Covenant and so on that are. But I want to be clear, uh, BCCLA's position here today isn't that you are bound, or that Canada is bound by international law not to extend Section 12 in the way that the Court of Appeal has done. Uh, This court has been clear that international human rights law operates as a floor, not a ceiling for charter interpretation. We presume that our charter protects, international, or protects human rights at least as well as international law, but we are free to exceed international law's requirements and we routinely do, and, and so we should. The point, however, is not that we are breaking international law if we affirm the Court of Appeal. We could expand section 12 in this way, but if we do so, we will be out of step with international courts and tribunals who have considered what this human right means and have said every time it's about people, it's about bodies, it's not a tool for judicial oversight of economic regulatory decisions made by governments
5: and legislatures. Thank you very much. Thank you. The
0: court will take its morning recess, 15 minutes. Villa. Mr. Villa. Hello, Justices, Justice Wagner. Legal persons should benefit from the protection of Section 12 of the Charter. So, for a Charter section, in order to invoke it, they have to prove that they have an interest that falls within the scope of that section. Section 12 gives a double protection, protection against penalties that are cruel by nature and those that are grossly disproportionate given their effects. Please turn to tab one. Decision Smith, 1073, 1074, and Justice Wilson, 1109. A legal person, sorry, where are you? Let me know. Page 1073, 1074 now. And we are talking about the protection against uh, the penalties that are grossly disproportionate because of their nature and their effects. If you look at the factum, Justice Lemer says that it's also important to evaluate the effects of uh, the penalty that is inflicted. If it is grossly disproportionate to what is appropriate, then it counters Section 12. And this has to be analyzed based on a number of factors, including the circumstances in which it is imposed. Uh, Justice Lemer goes on to add that there are certain terms or treatments. Treatments that will always be grossly disproportionate and inconsistent with human dignity. Justice Wilson goes on to say, I agree with my colleague to say that Section 12 is not limited to uh, to punishments that are cruel by nature, but also punishments uh, that are grossly disproportionate in their effects. And we say that a legal person does have an interest to not have a grossly exaggerated punishment inflicted upon it, given to its its interests, and please turn to tab 4, CIP. We are interpreting section 12, and you propose that at the Court of Appeal, and you're proposing it to, to us as well, and I think it is quite a daring proposal. And I would like to know what international law jurisprudence And how much should we undertake a comparison of our statutes and international statutes to interpret Section 12? I would say that with regard to Canadian law, the norms for sentencing, decency, standards are important so that there is protection for legal persons. So when it comes to the principles for sentencing and the norms of decency, that has to be accessible to legal persons in order to be able to decide what a fair and proportionate sentence is. With regard to international law, I don't think that international law is against the possibility of having a legal person uh, claim a protection under Canadian law, because under Section 12 we have underlying principles of justice, of proportionality, and the general rationality of the justice system. Question. Nowhere else do we see an interpretation that would enable a legal person to invoke cruel and unusual punishment with regard to a penalty that's been imposed on it. Yes, but I don't think that given the test that we have for protection that it would be grossly disproportionate in its effects, I don't think there that international law would be against enabling a legal person from being protected by that. Paragraph 33 of Noor. I would like to refer to that with regard to a legal person. So there has to be protection for a legal person when there is a penalty that in the circumstances is grossly disproportionate. So basically what we are saying is that section 12 of the charter practice, pr- pr- protects everyone from punishment that outrage the standards of decency. And so what is that concept of decency? It refers to all of the values, principles, goals, and foundations that limit the idea of a just and proportional sentence when it comes to sentencing, and it is accepted by our community. There's newer that I'd like to refer you to. There are three objectives. So to maintain a just society by by applying just sanctions. There's also to take into account the fundamental principle of sentencing that is that the sentence must be proportional like in 78.1 and also the goal of preserving public confidence in the justice system is the purpose of section 12 limited to the test that you've just set out according to us Section 12 protects legal persons against punishments or treatments that are grossly disproportionate based on their effects. No, I'm talking about cruelty, cruel punishment. Cruel, yes. Question, how can you be cruel to a legal person? Well, I would say that the notion of cruelty should be assessed in a, more, in a broader, more contemporary context with regard to the injury that could be incurred given the grossly disproportionate nature or rather effects. But I'm asking you a question. Does cruel mean anything and what does it mean to you? So in the context of a legal person, I think it could mean bankruptcy. But we're talking about legal persons, but it supposes that there's a a significant context. So the question here is, is there a context in Section 12 that fits a legal person? Does Section 12 apply to a legal person? And that depends on a number of things. But one of those things is, is it possible for the state to be cruel toward a legal person? The word cruel, I think, has to be developed taking into account contemporary reality in a broader way. We have to use that to interpret the Charter. So, according to me, it's important to interpret cruel and unusual in a context in which uh, the punishment creates effects that are grossly disproportionate uh, compared to a just and proportional sentence. So, that's how I was interpreting cruel and unusual in light of the effects that would be grossly disproportionate rather than fair and proportionate. So it's broader. So perhaps another way of asking my colleague's question is this. It seems that you're, by, by making this distinction between the grossly disproportionate sentence and the other, you're unhinging the effects of the grossly disproportionate sentence from human dignity. So you're, you're unhinging the two, by r- sort of re-reading Supreme Court decisions, as you say in your factum, that apparent translation order uh, rather error—but <laughs> even the majority of the Court of Appeal recognizes that human dignity is at the heart of this notion of cruelty being raised. So this unhinging that you propose is not what the Court of Appeal did. No, I'm, I'm not proposing that. Yes, dignity is a value that underlies Section 12 of the Charter, but Section 12 is not limited to that value. So, so any disproportionate sentences would fall under that if they are disproportionate in the context of sentencing. I'm sorry, but I'm not quite understanding what you are saying. I'm not trying to challenge you, but you're saying that, at minimus, human dignity would not be involved in your argument because we don't have to talk about that. Because if you're saying that human dignity is not involved here because your argument is for legal persons that don't have any, well, then what do we do with that? Well, my point is that, yes, Human dignity can be covered, it is a value that's involved in Section 12, but Section 12 is not limited solely to human dignity. It also brings in principles such as the principles of justice, of sentencing, proportional sentences, of equity and the public's confidence in the justice system. So, yes, but is it possible to say the same thing for Section 7 of the Charter, for example? So, was Irwin Toy properly decided? Well, in CIP, Justice Stevenson said that it wasn't necessary to prove that uh, life, liberty, and security were infringed with regard to sections 8 to 12. In my Submission Section 12 has its own uh, judicial framework; uh, it's independent from Section 7 because it can also be interpreted with regard to Section 8. Section, because everyone is, has a right to protection against uh, search and seizure, unreasonable search and seizure. So that is a protected right, and we know that the right to life concerns physical persons natural persons but you've extended it to legal persons in that right that protects legal persons from search and seizure so there's also the right to go to trial within a reasonable period and that has been extended to legal persons as well not just natural persons because there was the concept of social interest society Want both legal persons and natural persons to be able to go to court within a reasonable period. Question. But yes, the cases in which some charter rights were extended to legal persons, don't you think that it was more when it came to procedural rights than anything else? So the right to protection against unfair search and seizure is that the actual right and well both i think those are substantive rights because if you invoke the right to be tried quickly and it's refused then the case has to be stopped if there's a violation under 11b these are these are rights i think they are rights they're principles of fundamental justice but we're Talking about elements, so really, it's more about fairness of process than what you're talking, what you're saying about section 12. You're saying yes, you, section in section 12, uh, human dignity is an underlying value, but you're saying that we should go further. What is your legal basis to say that we should go further? Yes, yes, I I will come to that if if I may. Our submission today is that the test should be the standards of decency. And as I was saying, the standards of decency refer to a number of values, principles, and uh, purposes uh, that actually limit the idea of a fair and proportionate sentence. And that is in NUR, the first part of NUR. We have that. You mentioned it, and basically it is to, to, to it decide whether the sentence is cruel contrary to section 12. It, it has There has to be a two-step analysis. First, the court has to decide what a proportional sentence would be with regard to, to sentencing principles established by the code, and second, there has to be a decision about whether uh, there the sentence is grossly disproportionate compared to the proportionate sentence. We analyzed 24 Canadian decisions in which the fair and proportionate sentence has been applied to a legal person, and if we apply that concept to a legal person, well, yes, Section 12 can be invoked in my submission, Um, because if it is grossly disproportionate compared to what is proportionate, I can then argue that Section 12 provides protection. Because we have to take into account what, is, what outrages the standards of decency and what goes against the standards of society. Because it can happen that we go beyond the principles of sentencing and the judge cannot use its judicial, his or her judicial discretion to adapt the sentence to the circumstances of the person in front of him or her. So we examine 24 decisions in criminal law and statutory law that refer to the idea of a fair and proportionate sentence. Mr. Vila, don't you think that when it comes to uh, the the article here, or the section of the, the Building Act, that the lawmaker decided that the sentences were established on purpose. Because there is a distinction between individuals and legal persons. There's a lower fine for natural persons. So there's also the construction industry. And here it's the construction industry, but we could talk about the insurance industry and other So when the lawmaker creates legislation, there is a penalty for violations. And don't you think that with regard to reasonability, acceptability, the decency of a sentence, don't you think that debate took place when the legislation was drafted? With respect, uh, we refer to the comments of the minister that we quoted in our factum. and. We submit that, in fact, the sentence shows a great disproportion with regard to law R-20, also in the construction sector in Quebec, which tries to regulate activities in the construction sector. And really, if you introduce into the penalty principles of eviction, of absence of pardon, and of capital punishment, and that in your sentence there are amounts uh, that are being taken by the government and that it is drafted based on those elements that go against the purposes of Section 1 of the, um, the Building Act with regard to the safety of work done in the construction industry and also solvability. And if you have 46,000 based, or, and you compare that to a fair and proportionate fine, well, you'll find that it is not. So, Justice Wagner, I'd like to go back to the parliamentary debate and quote the minister. Yes, but in the 24 decisions that you mentioned, are there any of those decisions that say that that disproportionate sentence is cruel? Well, these are decisions that were handed down. Yes, I I understand, but the idea here... Because your your friends are saying that you are losing sight of the purpose of Section 12 when you argue in that way. You lose sight of the purpose which is linked to cruelty. It's a bit like the question that you were asked earlier. So I would ask you, and I understand your point, there are sentences that are disproportionate, that could be unfair, that they're not connected to the purpose of the act in question, be it the Building Act or any other piece of legislation, that is perfectly possible, but to say that they are unconstitutional, well, I wonder whether any of the judges in all of those decisions said that that sentence imposed on a legal person is cruel. Answer, no, not in that context, Justice. No, because there it was the question of trying to find the appropriate sentence for the offender. But at that point, they have to decide what the fair and proportionate sentence would be in that circumstance. And in that context, you are right, there was no mention of a a cruel sentence. But, as Justice Belanger did, she updated gave a broader meaning to the social contemporary context to say that cruel and unusual when it comes to a punishment it can be grossly disproportionate with regard to its effects in Southam it was mentioned that it's not possible to only look to dictionary definitions to interpret unusual so the charter has to be interpreted in an evolving way there has to be its meaning has to be interpreted over time it can't be fixed in time so it is clear that it's not possible to understand what the meaning of abusive is just looking at dictionaries or the rules for interpreting legislation because interpreting the constitution is a completely different exercise from interpreting statutes therefore with regard to the future it's important to have a permanent framework to analyze this and when you have a charter to protect rights and freedoms it's important it is important to know that these provisions, once adopted, cannot easily be changed, but therefore they are likely to evolve over time to accord to social, political, and historical elements of context. Courts are the guardians of the Constitution, and they must take into account these elements when they interpret the Constitutions or the charters. And that was the same thing uh, that happened in the United States with regard to the fixed or evolving nature of the scope of provisions. Yes, I would like you to give me an answer. You were about to refer to what the minister said. Yes, so perhaps you could let me know that.
2: At tab 12. Here you can see the Wednesday 30th November, the debates, and we believe that the principles that were integrated within one, and these are principles that are incompatible, incompatible with decency. They're incompatible with the principles of the determination of uh, the sentence. Where are you? Uh, CET 30, page 2. Uh, I believe. And so this is page two in tab 12. I think that uh, Bill uh, 35 is a fundamental for the industry. It will uh, uh, eliminate uh, criminals from our uh, construction site and and fraudulent actors and and those who uh, go against it will be sanctioned uh, severely. And uh, I believe we have the same objective, that is to eliminate criminality from the construction industry, so I don't think that it would be the fault. So page 34. Here there is uh, somebody has a thirty thousand uh, dollar fine. I mean, that would be ridiculous to have a, 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 an amount that would be less than a profit. And uh, with respect to capital punishment, page fifty, and we're going to uh, uh, add capital punishment. and uh, one ninety seven one. And there's a D next to it. There's C. Page 57, CD30, I think that, one, we're working against the black market activities, uh, working without a a construction license, contractor, those who are false, those who do poor work, and those who are working in the black market illegally, who do work without any authorization. For uh, the real fraudulent contractors who do things without permits and who do uh, black market work, we see this would be as a category D. So these principles, these are not recognized with respect to a sentencing. So if you put such ingredients in a legislation and if you target contractors that are fraudulent and who are working on the black market illegally and you want to implicate people who are not representing those situations with respect to that element, which could have a, a $200, $300 con- a uh, $200, $300 contract and then have a, a large $40,000 fine, that doesn't work. So if a person, they had 18 counts, and for not having respective uh, one ninety seven one zero one, and uh, f- with respect to, to billing, there were 18 b- bills. And the evidence showed that the work had been well done. The client was satisfied. And there were no there was no harm linked to the quality of the security and safety of the public. Three years later, four years later, he had eight hundred and twenty thousand dollar fine. And why? Because they have up until seven years. To go ahead with their prosecution, so a person maybe be have obt- had obtained a license, and then you have an $822,000 fine. Well, if the justice uses the newer test based on the test, well, he will look at the nature of the work, the nature of the legislation. He will look at the obje- the purpose of the law, the uh, the sentencing objective. And if I compare that with another type of sentence of the same type, he could say it could be a $10,000 fine. So that would mean that if there's no protection for legal persons in a given case, that would mean that uh, a a fair and proportionate would be $10,000, but uh, it's gonna be $822,000 because they're a, a legal person. And I think that if that were to happen, I think that it's going to really be a shock to the, the decency. People, uh, society will not uh, accept that in a legal person, the fair and proportionate sentence would be ten thousand. And if they have an eight hundred and twenty-two thousand dollars, and because you need to know that there are twenty for the sentences, it evolves over time. It's it's adjusted over time. So, for your information, yes maybe this is uh, uh, it's not a 197 that's not before us and maybe that's the what's at issue here the uh, the purpose of uh, this uh, provision Uh, you refer to parliamentary debates where whether whether it was good or not that's not the question but it shows the, the will of the national assembly to uh, punish, and that for consideration was important—that is, illegal uh, work or companies that uh, didn't respect the legislation. So, for the National Assembly, that was a priority. And if you look behind uh, what the legislation, well, I think you need to see that maybe you could attack the legislation, but not Section 12, uh, where the fines uh, were uh, sufficient to. Uh, Counterpart for an offence to one of the provisions of the legislation. What we say is that if you want to, to uh, if you want to target fraudulent contractors, you have to have those people go before the uh, justices and that they be sentenced. That's why there is a mandatory minimum sentence. It was set at thirty thousand because they considered that for. Uh, businesses that would be presenting themselves before the judge these would be people who had done the work without a license on uh, to defraud the government on the black market and that's why there was a mandatory minimum sentence. Uh, So if you want to target those people well fine but take away the mandatory minimum fine so that the the judge can adapt the the, uh, sentence with respect to the circumstances. A legal person who comes and says well I made a mistake I thought that uh, that was uh, that was uh, R twenty that applied, and I uh, I made a mistake, and I did a five hundred dollar job, and the work was well done. People were happy, and I worked uh, to fix the situation, and now I'm getting forty thousand, forty eight thousand dollar fine. Well, that's the point we're making. The principles that were retained to be able to set the fine, that is, to take into consideration the amounts of money that were not declared and uh, and, um, collected by the government to set your fine above and beyond those objectives that are incompatible with uh, the standards of sentencing. Well, we believe that there can be situations where it may be grossly disproportionate, disproportionate because the judge cannot use his judicial power to adapt the sentence based on the person who's before them and that's the problem, that's the difficulty. So I agree that this is in exceptional circumstances but it can occur and this is a case, a a true case and the difficulty there with this type of situation to have fines, if fines will evolve, maybe it's 822,000 and maybe an increase uh, as of 2019, 2020, it's increased by 15,000. So people who are doing small contracts in the construction fields, there are small uh, contracts that occur in that construction field and I talked about ar twenty one 1K1 and where it is said that contractors, independent contractors can to work without needing to have a salary, if they're doing minor work. So for small jobs, this is something that occurs. And so we, with respect, think that this legislation is much too large, much too broad. A contractor who, and if you look at Section 48 of the Building Act, Uh, This is uh, section 46, Uh, no one can uh, do construction work and we can't believe that uh, they can do that if they don't have a license to do so. If you publish uh, uh, publicity in the newspaper and you make an error and you say that you're a contractor because you're proposing to do uh, repair work, renovation work, and that you don't have your license. Even if you don't do the work, any work, you still have a $46,000 fine. And if you have three, well, you'll be at 130000 and thirty thousand. And there is, there has been no contract. So there can be other situations where the person may Make an offer, maybe there could be an offense because you made a, uh, a an offer you may have a forty six thousand and then you did some work without a license and they're going to put, put add you another forty six thousand dollar fine. so you're going to find situations where you have a five hundred thousand dollar and it'll be up to ninety three thousand dollars in fines. Well, this may be unfair, yes, but is there an attack on human dignity well. We, with respect, believe that human dignity, as Justice Belanger has said, this is a value that underlies Section 12, but it is not necessary to invoke a protection with respect to Section 12 of the Charter, and I would refer you to CIP, Justice Stevenson, who said that it's not necessary to prove that there have been has been uh, an, uh, an attack on life and security and the human dignity. Uh, liberty and security. Section 8, uh, right to privacy, this has uh, an impact on human dignity, but it hasn't stopped a legal person from using uh, – invoking Section 8. So I don't think that limiting oneself to human dignity can at that time uh, stop a, a legal person to, in a particular situation, the to uh, challenge the uh, fine and that it may be disproportionate if you will allow me I'd like to come back to the decisions that were handed down uh, in link with uh, human dignity quickly in Smith in uh, uh, 80, 1987, you 1987 used the standards of dignity and a uh, tab one whether the punishment prescribed is so excessive as, as to, uh, and this is page 10, tab one again. Here you translated it by if the sentence is excessive, to not be incompatible with the human dignity, tab one. You are referring again to norms of decency, by uh, quoting Judge Barnes in Anchor and Giller. Then this. Uh, The punishment is excessive and it becomes an attack on on standards of decency. Again, at tab one, page uh, ten, mm, mm, your colleague, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but above and beyond the question of decency and human dignity. other than these lexical questions. If you look at the context of each of those decisions, the means uh, of the reasons to brought it together and overall it is uh, the attack of a physical person. Think about Boudreau, and I'm sure that in your list you must have Boudreau on your list. It's always a question of what the natural person will be feeling. So I think we're we're losing the context because we're too stuck on the words with respect to Justice Kasserer in Luxem, The standards of decency was translated by, uh, uh, there's no mention of human dignity here, we speak only of standards of decency and it's not in Martino either and there's also in ghost there's this where they talk about standards of decency you didn't talk about human dignity and you translated in luxton you spoke about uh, our standards of decency i don't deny anything you're saying but i'm saying if you look above and beyond the choice of words within the text if you're looking at the context of each of those decisions is it not true that we are characterizing decency or dignity, that these are attacks on a natural person. person. And this is what uh, the Constitution is talking about when they're dealing with cruelty. My position, as Justice Belanger uh, uh, indicated in their decision, A sentence can be cruel. You have to look at how severe it is within its context, and you have to link it with the the question of proportionality of the sentence, and it's in that uh, context. For me, the charter, I think it has to be interpreted in in an evolving way by taking into consideration the social reality. Human dignity, I agree. Uh, I believe it's an important value that is covered by section 12, but it is not limited only to human dignity. You're referring in your judgments uh, to the standards of uh, sentencing when you say that that the justice cannot make a fair proportionate sentence because of certain precise circumstances, well, the the standards of sentencing are important. Why? Because it underlies the values of justice, the proportionality of the sentence and the trust of the public in the justice system. And with respect, we can't see a situation with respect to a legal person if the minimum fine is one million and and if it were $1,000, the fair and proportionate sentence, you can't tell the society that there's no protection because there's no human dignity, but with respect, I don't think that this would would be accepted. If we follow your reasoning for your client, maybe a company X is say you, they have a, a substantial fine, it could be a disproportionate or cruel fine, It could be called torture, whatever, but for another company, a legal person that have uh, millions of dollars in their bank and that they're used to doing work and that they uh, want to uh, be able to defend themselves with the law, it's not cruel. But for the human person, whoever the person is, where, with respect to Section 12, what it applies it you don't make a distinction. It's the, the natural person. Whereas for a commercial, business. A, for a corporation, there can be nuances. So is that not the explanation? Is that not what we're looking at in 12, uh, section 12, that is a natural person? With respect, justice, I think that it all depends on the context, because it's not the fact that you're a a natural person, that uh, that, uh, what is called for uh, under section 12, you'd have to be able to show in that case uh, that the sentence with respect to you, what was grossly disproportionate, with respect to a fair and proportionate sentence. So, I think it's within that context a legal person, for example, that that would be a large company with plenty of funds doing very well well, at that point, well, maybe for that uh, corporation in their situation, it would be difficult for them to show that there was uh, that the sentence was grossly disproportionate, but it could be otherwise for small companies with one or two employees uh, who uh, see themselves uh, uh, fined with a $500,000 would when, 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 when it would be proportionate if it were a $5,000 fine. So I think that we need to broaden. We have to broaden the meaning of, of grossly a disproportionate, unusual sentence. I think it needs to be modernized and I think that this was done in Smith. Because there they're talking about a, a grossly disproportionate uh, sentence because of its effects, but they also talk about the possibility that a provision could be examined when you look at a hypothetical situation and reasonable situation so if you do a restrictive interpretation for the test for under Section twelve you could challenge a test the uh, examination of a reasonable uh, situation. It's not part of the test for Section 12. So why was that done? It was to be able to uh, open the doors so that in the future there could be an evolution and that there could be protection conferred with respect to the Charter. And so it's within that context. In Smith, you say that Justice Lamere broadened Things, and I would imagine it 's in that context that you 're quoting uh, uh, justice we'll in the same uh, uh, decision uh, and they 're saying that i believe i would uh, I agree with Justice Lambert to say that section twelve is not limited to uh, to cruel uh, punishments uh, by by na- nature but those that may be uh, grossly disproportionate that 's right because I believe that this decision of the court must have a vision as to what could happen in the future, because we, of course, don't know all of the the sentences that could be handed down. So, it could be grossly disproportionate, and if protection has not been conferred with respect, it could be that uh, society may disagree and they uh, may say there should have been a protection, there was no protection, so they have to to, to, to shut down their business, they have to to uh, let their, their employees go and so uh, we can't uh, set a fine at a million dollars. So I think you have to have a global uh, vision, you have to be very careful before you say no to the protection of a legal person. You have to maybe, yes, set it in a framework, but I believe that the newer test is an adequate test, because the uh, uh, idea of fair and proportionate sentence. We have case law in Canada that uh, uh, that shows that fair and proportionate sentences applies, and of course you might have an interest in, in invoking section 12, maybe because it might have been because of a regal penal situation, because it went against the basis of our penal system where in a, one, in a given case you would not allow the corporation to be able to rehabilitate itself, to be able to change its uh, ways of doing things and they have to close their doors. Well, do we not uh, uh, may have to make a correlation automatically with uh, the what we want to c- correct uh, through a very uh, strict and severe fines, and uh, the di- the grossly disproportionate character, I believe that the National Assembly felt that there was a problem within the construction industry, which would mean that uh, to encourage people not to uh, to commit those offenses there was a uh, the, the, the sentence was uh, uh, disincentives, and that 's why they were so high, so could we not take into consideration before we think that it 's totally disproportionate? Well, they did so because it it was uh, it, it was uh, one uh, ninety seven it was a one thousand dollar fine that was it. but once they put point one 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 it was one ninety seven point one where well, they were influenced with respect to another provision for people who would be uh, leasing their license to a third party. And they were saying, well, this, well, this can't be, well, this can't happen. Uh, they're so, putting their $30,000 in their pockets every year. This is unacceptable. So they did, made a link with respect to this, these actions, and they transposed that to people who are having work done uh, on the black market illegally. So it's not because you're doing your work without a license that... You necessarily correspond to the profile of somebody who's working on the black market. So that's the problem. I agree that there could, they could target contractors that are fraudulent. I have no problem with that. You could keep your ceiling but give uh, some uh, uh, leeway to the justice to say well he made uh, some errors, he was diligent nonetheless. So an alternate solution would be to take away the minimal, uh, the mandatory minimum fine. And what I was saying, it's been evolving, it's been uh, increasing over time. In some years you're going to see uh, $50,000 fines for contracts of $500 and the person is going to say, well, I did $500 of work and I made a mistake and I made a profit of $100 and now I have a, a $500,000 fine. Well, if there are cumulative fines, as in the case where we have 18 counts and you have 850,000, 860,000 and he does the newer test and he says, well, I would limit that to $10,000. Well, if you say, well, you're not protected because it's not a question of human dignity. Well, with respect, I really don't think that it would be accepted by society. Why? Well... This is a, a grossly disproportionate with, uh, with respect to its effects. As Justice Martin said in Boudreaux, if we're not able to f- ensure that a, a, a legal person could rehabilitate itself could be pardoned and that there could be a reinsertion, well, in society. Well, that has to be part of a sentencing. It's as Justice Martin said, it goes against the fundamental basis of our justice system. So that, I think, is where we have to be extremely careful. And I agree with respect to the regulation, it's going to, of course, uh, go case by case. We're not uh, challenging other laws, whether it's with respect to the labor, environment, health and safety. This is not being challenged. We are presenting you uh, this R20 legislation. So I don't know if you'd like me – I had uh, uh, presented a reasonable situation. Uh, Justice Brown had. uh, given me the my, uh, th- authorization to do so I, so i don't know if you would like to hear them i have uh, 14 minutes left so i'm going to go ahead and do so with respect we um, claim uh, that the sentence uh, in the, to the respondent at uh, of eight hundred and forty-three, that it would be eight hundred and forty-three dollars a fair a sentence a fine for our client. Why? Because I was, I was saying we have compared the provisions of our twenty and one hundred and ninety-seven one, and with respect, it would be eight hundred and forty-three dollars for my client. We don't have that evidence before us. No, but these are elements that I. Uh, bring forth from the the judgment. What the judgment says, there's been an administrative confusion. My client was uh, doing cabinet work in kitchens. My client received a check by air bill, uh, and it was deposited in their account, and uh, there was a a link to business. It was a general a contractor who had a license to be able to hire subcontractors, and the evidence shows that the subcontractors had their license for doing the work the ju- the judge concedes at paragraph thirty three this is uh, the court of quebec paragraph thirty three the ju- judge uh, concedes that uh, through the general contractor with whom they're linked, had uh, given the installation to uh, a contractor with a license, and Michel Ratid builds the cabinets and the installations. Uh, Michel Ratio does the installation of the material at the clients, and that the work is given to a subcontractor in this in the present case. So in this context, it's important to look at the quality of the work is not a challenge, Uh, safety. uh, We have a context where the people involved in the work itself, uh, they had held a license and unfortunately he uh, uh, took the checks and the checks went through his count and he was found guilty. So if we do the NUR test, well, Uh, From the evidence, we can see that uh, this is not a fraudulent contractor working on the black market, and the $30,000, it should not be applied uh, to him as a fine, and because of the attenuating circumstances where the police and others involved did hold a license, well, the purpose of uh, Section 1 have been met. The quality of the work is there, safety of the public is there, the integrity, the professionalism, The judge cannot use his discretionary power to be able to adapt it to the particular situation for a sentence which we can consider that of eight hundred and forty three dollars would be a fair and proportionate in the, the context because the, the 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 quality of the sentence is is wrong and there are principles that are in. Incomp- incompatible, and you're considering the sentence. You're considering people who have not declared. they are comparing with people who haven't declared their reven- revenues to the state, and you're considering. So all of that should be removed. The fact that not not holding a license that is uh, valid, but as uh, purpose, but the rest is irregular. So we're challenging, that, and this is completely un, unfair and uh, to determine the sentence. So when you look at all of the incompatible comrades with the norms of decency, with respect, I would say that the state is putting itself outside of the process, outside of the process. The
0: when your basic parameters are not compatible. So, question. So, nobody's contesting the fact that it is very strict that the sentences in the cases before us are very, very strict in certain cases, but the question here isn't really that. It's to find out whether a legal person can invoke the protection of Section 12 answer a legal person can invoke section 12 if the sentence is grossly disproportionate and if the circumstances do not make it possible for that legal person to correct the situation so if the legal person cannot rehabilitate itself and to, to, to resolve the prob- the problem and the only outcome is closing the business and bankruptcy well I think that it has to be put in context uh, there can have a grossly disproportionate sentence that will lead to bankruptcy of the business and to all of the employees losing their job. So if you look at 197 when it was introduced into the legislation, well they took into account a number of factors that could be taken into account in sentencing. And those factors are in context because when we talk about standards of decency. Society wants legal persons to have fair and proportionate sentences because it's linked to the financial viability of the company and to preserving employees' wages. So that's what Justice Belanger put forth. The dissenting judge, Justice Chamberlain, said uh, that Section 12 has a broader scope, he says that in his decision, and he even talks about mandatory minimum sentences, and he says that because a legal person has no human dignity, I am not going to grant you that dignity. But we're not talking here about something that is limited to human dignity. We're talking about an economic issue, and what we submit is that his approach was too restrictive with regard to Section 12. It is necessary to allow the standards of decency evolve, let society evolve, and then allow the courts to intervene without saying, nope, it's too far. So with regard to the Judge representing the majority, she refers to the standards of sentencing in paragraph 92 and says that a sentence can be grossly disproportionate for a legal person and it can lead to unacceptable consequences and that completely ignore the principle of proportionality in sentencing. And then she refers to section 12 saying that it takes into account the important values of justice The proportionality of sentencing because she refers to the Magna Carta and also mentions the public's confidence in the justice system in paragraph 144. Yes well the connections, what are they? Are we talking about the rehabilitation here of a legal person? Well why not if we would make it possible for the legal person to uh, obtain a license, for example, to be reintegrated afterwards into society. If you can give a legal person the possibility to correct its mistakes, So just to to be able to set things on a fair footing, but here, we are looking at a situation where there's a minimum sentence and it's 40,000, it's going to be more in a few years. Question. So if, if we have a company that goes bankrupt, is the director of that company – well, is there are there restrictions, is there a waiting period for the director of that company to wait before creating a new company and, and, and operating the construction industry, for example? Answer they have discretionary power so if a company or a corporation has gone bankrupt is it possible to start another corporation but you were involved in the bankruptcy of the former business uh, the uh, public authority can say nope sorry you can't do that you have to pay your fine first before you can start up another company so it's without prejudice because it's it's under control before having access to another company. So really, what we're talking about here is, is, it's a family business. They operate out of their home. Uh, Their wife works for the company, doing the accounting. They want to keep their business, and their name is, is important. So they don't want to give up the fight. to conclude now with regard to justice binashi and the term everyone what does justice binashi say she takes the standards of decency and of sentencing and she says that both legal persons and natural persons are subject to the standards of decency and that the legitimate interests of citizens should be taken into account when interpreting section 12 of the Charter and the word everyone. It should also take into account the rights granted to legal persons 811B and 811D. And it should also take into account the fact that it is not necessary to establish that there is an infringement of life, liberty, or security to decide that section 12 is invoked. I would respectfully submit that in Boudreau, paragraph 43, Dignity is something to be considered, but it is not necessary because the test is on all of the grossly disproportionate effects. Furthermore, the disproportionate economic consequences do not prevent Section 12 from being applied. Paragraph 75 of Boudreaux shows this. We also have to take into account social interests because in CIP, this Court said that Legal persons must be treated fairly in the same way that natural persons are treated fairly. So the values of, of fairness and justice are important. So it takes the concept of equality and integrates it into section 12. Because section 12, underlying it, are important values and principles. We're talking about justice, fairness, proportionality in sentencing, and the public confidence in the justice system trust is important and confidence so that's why i am saying that with great respect i think it could be dangerous for the future if the state has a margin of maneuver where it could have a grossly disproportionate effect on legal persons And I would say that the evolving interpretation of the Charter protects the roots of the living tree and that when you have a legal person, you have to – when you assess whether the effect on a legal person is grossly disproportionate based on its effects, you do not harm Section 12. Thank you. Mr. Mubayed. chief justice justices my submission is based on two things first section 12 is based on the quality of the sentence and also the right is in legal persons and not in third parties so with regard to section 12 it governs the quality of the sentence and there was an important detail in smith that I would like to bring forth and that could answer the question that has been asked a number of times this morning with regard to the definition of the word cruel. So how can unusual, because we're talking about cruel and unusual punishment, so what about unusual? And that debate was solved in Smith um, by both the dissenting and uh, the majority opinions, because both opinions concluded that, in fact, the test was linked to uh, the concise formulation of a norm that had to take both words together or a compendious interpretation. So if we can't just go to the dictionary and look up unusual, um, we don't take the definition in the dictionary for cruel either. You have to look at the compendious formulation of the standard, of the norm, which is cruel and unusual. So they have to be interpreted together. With regard to the purpose, to a certain extent, All of the rights protected by the Charter arise from human dignity. So to answer a question that Justice Cote asked earlier, Section 8, for example, in 1998 in Tabak, this court recognized that a legal person has a right to the protection of privacy in commercial documents, and therefore this court made it possible to keep confidential certain documents. So there's something that at first glance might seem to be only related to human dignity, but because there are other values that are in the purpose, within the purpose, well, it can be applied to legal persons. In the case here, if we examine values, obviously there's human dignity and we are not minimizing human dignity as an underlying value of section 12 but there's also the, the value of the proportionality in sentencing and so there is a preventive sentences of course such as preventing criminality and there's also the foreseeability of sentences because Canadians never uh, expect to have a sentence that is unusual and there are other rights linked to that such as 11b in the Charter and there's also the legitimacy of the state's exercise of its authority in penal and criminal areas. And that's linked to the idea of the confidence in the justice system that uh, Mr. Via mentioned earlier. Chief Justice, you were asked a question earlier with regard uh, to what the uh, National Assembly said. And of course, it's very important to take that into account, what the lawmakers say. And, and we think that in analyzing section one, this is completely protect or relevant. So. Can a legal person invoke the protection of Section 12? The answer for us is very simple. Section 12 is a part of a continuum. There's Section 8 on the protection of privacy. So even um, before procedural rights are engaged, and then you have 11B and 11D, that this court is recognized as being applicable to legal persons. And then there's the sentencing criteria and the test that when we read Wilson, so when you distill the case law, the test is grossly disproportionate. So anything that is grossly disproportionate, or rather if it's simply disproportionate, it does not come within the ambit of section 12, but if it is grossly disproportionate, it does. So do you think that a high minimum mandatory sentence for a legal person might be unusual, but is it also cruel? Because you were saying this compendious that yes cruel and unusual go together, but I'm It seems to me that you're arguing more on the unusual nature of the sentence or penalty But what about the cruel aspect? I'm not seeing it if you interpret cruel according to its its meaning its regular meaning well no i'm not actually arguing about the unusual part that's a mistake too and because there are sentences that may not be unusual but yes so but that's my point you are saying that you're arguing them together but actually you're only talking about the unusual side of unusual and cruel but in fact cruel and unusual gave rise to a a norm that is constant And as soon as there is a sentence that is grossly disproportionate, it violates something that can violate human dignity or the other elements we brought up. So what we are submitting is that cruel and unusual is a formula that was interpreted together. So yes, the right belongs to the legal person because it is a right that is based on the test for Grossly disproportionate sentences that is based on human dignity but is not require it, does not require it. And so that you can look only at the legal person without going to the third parties behind that legal person. Mr. Brandon Kane.
5: Yes, sir.
8: Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. <clears throat> on behalf of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, I'd like to begin by returning to this court's decision in CIP where the, the court said that whether or not a corporate entity can invoke a charter right will depend upon whether it can establish that it is an interest falling within the scope of the guarantee and one which accords with the purpose of the provision. So the inquiry is a purposive one, and that's underscored by this court's decision in Poulin, which affirms that a charter right must be interpreted in light of the purpose or purposes driving it. But I submit that it's important to be clear about how the purpose of a charter right is determined, The court's ability to select the purpose is not unconstrained. Instead, it has to be grounded in the text and context of the right. Or in the words of Professor Hogg that are quoted in Poulin, in the language in which the right is to be expressed, the implications to be drawn from the context in which the right is found, including other parts of the charter, the pre-charter history of the right, and the legislative history of the charter. And I say that this is critical to the legitimacy of the court's interpretive project. Because while well, the Constitution is, of course, a living tree and the purpose of a charter right can evolve over time, its text and context help establish the natural limits of its growth to complete Lord Sankey's famous metaphor. And if we apply this methodology to a novel case like this, where the issue is whether corporations can invoke a particular charter right that isn't covered by precedent, i say the analysis works as follows. First, we have to begin with the text of the provision. In Poulin, this court said that when conducting a purposive analysis of a charter right, the starting point must be the language of the section. And the text of Section 12 in my submission is neutral. It confers its right on everyone, or shakon, and this is a term that's used in some charter provisions, like Section 2b and Section 8, that have been held to apply to corporations. But in Section court.
1: 7 it hasn't.
8: That's correct. That was my my next point. And and then it's used in other provisions, like Section 7, that haven't. My point is simply this. Section 12, looking at the text, is a much more open-ended provision than the word that you find, at least in the English
1: version of Section 15 of the Charter, which extends only to individuals. Which has been held to extend only to individuals. So what is there about Section 12 that (coughs) requires an analysis different from what the court did in Section 7, looking at whether it could apply to corporations. How can cruelty apply to corporations?
8: Well that's an excellent question. So that leads into my next submission, which is that because in my submission section 12 is not determinative, we have to ask about the context of the section and what, how the word is used within the context of the section. So, the context of certain charter rights make it obvious that corporations have no interest falling within them, because it's metaphysically impossible for a legal entity without physical form to assert certain rights. So Section 7, for example, life, liberty, and security of the person and Erwin Toy, those aren't things that a corporate form has. Another example is Section 9, the, the, uh, the right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. That can't be done for a corporation. But to your point, Justice Abella, I say it's different for Section 12 because the context is preventing cruel and unusual punishment. That's not an interest that is metaphysically impossible for a corporation to assert. And I say this for a couple of reasons. First, in Boudreaux, this court held that punishment under section 12, putting aside what cruel and unusual means, but simply punishment, includes a sanction for conviction that's imposed in furtherance of the purposes and principles of sentencing, in that case what was essentially a fine, even if it doesn't impact the offender's liberty or security interests. So under the definition of punishment standing alone, I see a corporation can be punished within the meaning of section 12. So that leads to the real issue before the court, which is whether the punishment can be cruel and unusual. And I submit it
1: can for a couple of reasons. First, textually, <clears throat> Section 12... Before, before you get to text, I, I, I'm looking as well, when, you're, when you can get to it, for a concrete example of what would constitute cruel punishment to a corporation. Very well, I will, I will try to provide you with that. And, and let me tell you my reference point. The beginning of the paragraph where the court concludes in Irwin Toy that Section 7 doesn't apply it says, "Red as a whole, it appears to us that this section was intended to confer protection on a singularly human level. So I'm interested in how you uh, carve out a difference for cruelty. So um,
8: it, it, I, I do want to come to that point, although I know my time is short. Um, I, I guess I would just say a couple of things very quickly. Um, textually, I just note that section 12 doesn't refer to punishment that's inhuman, unlike in many of the other international treaties that predated the charter. And I say, the drafters of Section 12 could have used that language, but they didn't. And that's meaningful. One of my friends referred earlier to the decision of the Privy Council in Rais to indicate that the language difference between Section 12 and those other provisions that talk about inhumanity didn't matter. But in Rais, the actual issue in RAISE was about the death penalty. It wasn't about the application of those provisions to a corporation. Secondly, um, in terms of, to your point, Justice Abella, I say that the the, the fundamental organizing principle of section 12 is preventing gross disproportionality. And there are other contexts... Is that the
5: same thing as cruelty to you?
8: So I I suggest that it can be when it relates to punishment. And the reason I say that, in Bedford, under section 7 of the Charter, this court held that laws, and I'm just quoting here, are in violation of our basic values when the effect of the law is grossly disproportionate to the state's objective. And what I submit is really operative here.
5: So cruelty is synonymous with against basic values then? No.
8: What I think is going on is that gross disproportionality is about a punishment that's clearly needless.
5: What is cruelty about?
8: Well cruelty, in my submission, is the infliction of a punishment that's gratuitous. If there is no rationale for it at all, if it's grossly disproportionate, it can't accomplish any rational purpose whatsoever. That's a,
5: that's a very novel meaning of cruelty.
8: <clears throat> I, I, I acknowledge I mean, If that, you're getting
5: that far, you, you've come to the wrong building. You need a constitutional amendment.
8: Well, I would simply say that um, that, in my view, is what the effect of saying something is grossly disproportionate is because you're saying but there's I don't no care about gross
5: disproportionality. I care about cruelty. You're equating it to gross disproportionality. I want to know why that's equivalent to cruelty, and you tell me because because there's, there's, there's no reason for, well, to impose the punishment.
8: To your point, and I, and I know my time is, has, has, has run here, I would simply say that the, if, if the infliction of punishment isn't being done in service of a purpose, if it's being done gratuitously, that in my submission is synonymous with the ordinary meaning of the word cruel because there's no reason to do it. You're inflicting punishment for no reason. Well, that all right. in my submission me, is I Let me
4: just cruel. ask you this very quickly. The prison guard who's frustrated Beats up the prisoner badly, you know. Just really gives him a working over. Okay, same prison guard. You could say we'd say that's cruel. You're being really cruel to this person. Same prison guard starts punching and kicking a wall. Do we say we're being he's being cruel to the wall? No, we don't.
8: But a wall is not a legal person. <laughs> is no, but but, but, a but the wall sco- is
4: inanimate, just like a corporation is.
8: But the scope of Section Twelve. Neither
4: one has feelings. All right, final question by Justice Sabella.
1: Do you accept that cruelty, as it's been defined, uh, has a suffering component?
8: No, I don't. In my submission, if if the purpose of Section 12 was to prevent the subjection of, of individuals to cruel and unusual suffering, it would have said that. It speaks of cruel and unusual punishment. And, and punishment... Sorry, Justice Sabella, go ahead.
1: I get, I'm trying to nail down whether there is any kind of even accepting cruelty applicable to corporations, whether there is any kind other than economic cruelty that could be imposed. And if that is the case, how do we get around the fact that we have said economic rights are not protected by the Charter?
8: So the way that I would suggest to get around that is to say Section 12 is is first and foremost about preventing punishment that is cruel and unusual. And we know from Boudreaux that punishment doesn't have to affect the liberty or security interests of the offender, It can be something that's a sanction imposed on conviction in furtherance of the principles of sentencing. So for that reason, you have to start with that, which may not be something that affects me in a suffering sense, and then ask whether it's cruel and unusual, i.e. disproportionate.
5: All right, thank you very much. <coughs> Réplique.
0: The Respondent admits that Section 12 involves an inherent protection of human dignity. In fact, he says that it's one of the underlying values that is protected by that section. However, given that proportionality is one of the tests that is used for sentencing, according to him that criteria should be the most important, preponderant, and would be the purpose of the protection under Section 12. So that means that protection of human dignity could be completely set aside. In fact, he spoke to you at length on the purposes of section 197.1 of the Act, which he characterized as producing what amounts to a bad sentence. But at that point, we're not talking about the effects of the sentence under 197.1 that produces unconstitutional effects on his client. It's actually the characteristics of the sentence itself and the objectives of that sentence. So here, what that means is that it's the act itself that is on trial, rather than looking at the effects of the sentence on the respondent. So according to him the standards of decency make it possible for him to examine the purpose of the, the lawmakers and because they don't fulfill the principles of proportionality in sentencing then it would be run counter to section 12 of, of the charter but what the respondent would really want is for section 12 to provide protection so that sentences can be adapted to the moral nuances of each offender but the court has already said that that is not the purpose of the protection under section 12. That's even more true when it comes to regulations f- involving strict liability as Justice Chamberlain said at the hearing at the Court of Appeal of Quebec we do not ask about the reasons why someone who is speeding on the highway is speeding. I mean, is it because they're rushing to the hospital where their child is, or is it just because they're, they love to go fast? And we're not going to adapt the sentence uh, under that offense based on the reasons for which the offense was committed, when it's strict liability. So the sentence will not be adapted to the moral nuances of the offender. It is uh, the lawmaker's prerogative and it's been stated again and again by this court. It is up to the lawmaker to establish a sentence that it feels is appropriate for certain categories of offences. And Section 12 does not make it possible to ensure perfect proportionality of sentences. It only ensures that the sentences will not be inconsistent with human dignity. Thank you. I would like to thank you on behalf of my colleagues. I would like to thank counsel for their arguments and the court will reserve its judgment in this manner and on this matter and will reconvene tomorrow morning at nine thirty. Thank you.